This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Carpe Diem with your host, Lisa McDonald. Mama told me when I was young, we're all on superstars. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me once again on this lovely Friday morning here in Dundas, Ontario, Canada. Uh, my show is Carpe Diem. I'm your host, Lisa McDonald, and I'm very excited to have uh, somebody who I really, really, truly respect uh, be my guest today on my show. She's found the time to join me, and uh, she's a very extremely busy woman, so I'm very grateful for the time that she's offered up to be with me on the show today. Uh, so my guest today is a lovely woman by the name of Taryn Clark. Uh, Taryn's out in Edmonton, Alberta, where I used to live for about 10 years. And Taryn is the Chief Executive Officer at Spinal Cord Injury Alberta, which is a nonprofit organization. Uh, Taryn herself has been uh, in that role for 10 years. Uh, it's a direct service organization. It's nonprofit, has worked a third of her career in healthcare, uh, two-thirds of her life in the charitable disability field, and thrives off change. Uh, Taryn characterizes herself as a maternalist as opposed to a feminist. Taryn is a mentor to many and a phenomenal leader at, at not just the provincial level, but certainly at the national level. And for myself personally, I had the honor when I was out uh, in Alberta, I was uh, very fortunate, very privileged and honored to be a board member with the agency, which was at that point named uh, the Canadian Paraplegic Association Alberta. And uh, and I was very, very grateful that when I made the decision to move back to Ontario, my, my home, in 2011, uh, the last board meeting that I had attended out in Alberta, uh, I was very sad that I, I thought that I would have to give up that position because uh, I had worked with phenomenal people, uh, very much was behind the vision of the agency. And we reviewed the bylaws, and uh, it was stated that even though I was in Ontario, I could still participate actively in my role as a board member, which I did do for a period of time, but then had to relinquish it just because of other things having ramped up in my life. So, Taryn, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Lisa. It's always a pleasure to have a conversation with you. Well, thank you. And likewise, uh, you're one of my favorite people and, and the types of guests that I, I choose to have on my show. And I'm always uh, grateful when people are receptive to wanting to join me and find the time to join me. Uh, you know, as we talked about uh, before going live, just people who are truly authentic, uh, truly leaders in whatever it is that they're passionate about, honoring themselves, and truly making an impactful difference on the lives of many. And of course, with what you do and within your role, and being able to facilitate that and to lead that. You've done such a phenomenal job in your 10-year career. So why don't we talk a little bit, Taryn, about um, the name change. Why don't we start with the, the when When was the name change to the organization and what were the reasons that precipitated that? Well, we went live with our name change uh, November of 2014, so it's actually mm-hmm. fairly recent. But the process of preparation for that um, took place over a number of years. Um, it was um, certainly a, a goal for all of the organizations in our federation across Canada. So there's provincial organizations similar to me in each province. 
And mm-hmm. collectively, we, um, we felt it was really important to consider a name change, and we started the process by doing a, a cross-country scan with our stakeholders. Um, that scan was very supportive of a name change. And, I mean, to give you a little bit of history, the name Canadian Paraplegic Association had been with us since um, shortly after World War II. At that time, people with quadriplegic didn't survive. And so the founders of our organization were World War II vets who had paraplegia and had been sent to live in long-term care facilities or veterans' hospitals. And, of course, this was completely unacceptable to them. Um, As soldiers, uh, they had a vision that was much broader. And so they uh, worked together to form the organization to create the supports that allow people to transition back into the community and to live... um, meaningful and lives that and fully participate in their communities. So mm-hmm. that's kind of our history. In terms of why we would want to have a name change, well, paraplegia really refers to just one um, aspect of spinal cord injury. And, in fact, our services are probably more often required by people who have a higher-level injury or um, an injury that um, is seen through some type of medical intervention or other medical process. So spinal cord injury, if, if you were recently diagnosed with something that was going to cause you major mobility challenges, you would go to the internet looking for information on spinal cord injury because that's how the diagnosis um, is presented to people. Um, mm-hmm. they, they don't use terms of quadriplegia or paraplegia. Um, mm-hmm. They might speak to tetraplegia, which means four limbs are involved, or um, hemiplegia, which means limbs on, on one side of the body. Um, but most commonly, doctors and healthcare professionals and people in the community speak about spinal cord injury. So um, it made sense that we changed, and of course the process of change requires a lot of legal requirements, bylaws, um, member votes at annual general meetings, and then registration provincially, federally. Mm-hmm. So that, that's essentially the process we went through and, and why. Wonderful. And so why don't we talk a little bit about the scope of your position? How has that changed for you since you went from being uh, formerly the executive director to now the CEO? And congratulations, by the way. That's wonderful. Well, it, you know, in terms of what I do, it really hasn't changed. Um, mm-hmm. When we reviewed our bylaws um, in preparation of the name change, it was it was recommended um, by legal counsel that the scope of the role fits more appropriately with a title of, of CEO, and particularly because we, you know, we are building a succession plan, um, we felt that it would more accurately recruit the skill set um, for somebody who would replace me at the time that I leave. Okay, and uh, we talked a little bit about that pre-live about succession planning because that was one of the last discussions I recall having had as a board member when I lived out in Alberta. And uh, and that, of course, was, I mean, you've been there for 10 years now and you're still going strong and, in my opinion, stronger. So um, what are your thoughts on, on succession planning? What are your thoughts on your role currently and, and what you envision for yourself in either the short-term future or long-term future? Well, in regards to succession planning, I think it's critically important for organizations that are governed by boards of directors that a sound uh, plan is in place. 
because, you know, if you look at my role, I travel throughout the province periodically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when you spend a lot of time on highways, you are at greater risk. The other, the other element is that as you age, you are at higher risk for um, ailments. Um, conditions that might remove you from the workforce. So, you know, I believed it was really important for our board to have a good plan in place so that if I should have to leave suddenly, um, they they had a plan to follow and, and the organization would not be impacted negatively by um, a quick change. Mm-hmm. Um, I anticipate that the change will be more gradual and that, you know, when I make the decision to leave, I can give lots of notice and um you know, make sure that uh, there's a good transition plan for my replacement. But mm-hmm. it, it's good to be prepared for all options. Right. And, of course, that would be, you know, obviously a very responsible way to, to think and to plan and to strategize. But uh, I'm sure I speak for everybody when I say, you know, that that's not a day that we hope comes soon. And uh, the day that that does, in fact, arrive, it's going to be a very sad day because, uh, you know, what I know from the feedback and the conversations I've had about you specifically, Taryn, um, you know, you're very – what you're respected for outside of – the direct work and uh, the connections and the collaborations that you've built up for the association, which benefits all. It's, uh, you're very much a visionary. And so it's, you know, you foresee things well into the future that would be applicable or beneficial for the greater good of all today. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not everybody who's even positioned in a position such as a leadership position to make those decisions who has the, the intuitiveness or the insight or the fortitude, um, to even grasp such concepts. And you've always done it so beautifully. And it's always been very impressive, uh, what you've managed to come up with and, uh, you know, get people on board to believe in and not just believe in, but be a part in it. And, uh, you know, you, you bring everybody's strengths. You're very good at assessing what it, people's individual strengths are and, uh, and finding the appropriate role or position in which they'll thrive and flourish in. So, you know, it's, that's, that's pretty outstanding. And it's not everybody, regardless of their status or position, who has that ability. So I just want to say that that's something that you're very well known for and uh, respected for. Oh, thank you. But, um, you know, at a personal level, I mean, I really enjoy change, and I think change is critical to the long-term sustainability of of people and organizations. Absolutely. So um, that probably contributes to some of my success in this role, but Mm -hmm. it it also motivates me to know that, you know, at some point, um, if if I should stay in this role too long, it could cause the organization to maybe stagnate. Because um, that's been my observation over the years, is that um, an organizational leader can stay too long and mm-hmm. it becomes uh, more of the same as opposed to always looking to the future and responding, reacting to change, keeping the services relevant to the environment around us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what are the current services? What are what are the some of the changes that may have ar- arisen uh, since I departed from the association? Well, we've um, we still provide client services or direct services. In mm-hmm. the the past two years or two years ago, we um, spent a year revising our program model for client services. So you know, the first stage was really to go to the literature and look at 
examples that were evidence-based around community services that really have high impact for people with spinal cord injury and or other mobility challenges. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, a fairly comprehensive survey of what is out there. Honestly, there's not a lot of evidence-based practice when it comes to community service. So we tried to learn from whatever models or uh, examples that we could find. And then we, we spent a, a long time working with staff in that field and consumers um, talking about what is it that we do that's critical, what is it we need to do more of, and really fleshed out a nice model. So, you know, it includes um, sort of a client pathway uh, from hospital to our organization, to the community, um, includes a logic model, uh, which is really important for funders, um, identifies the key strategies that we would want to um, uh, be really focused on. So that, that was a very rewarding process, and that's been implemented over the past year. Uh, but over the past year, then, we went on to uh, do the same thing for our peer program. So peers supporting peers has always been fundamental to our organization, Mm-hmm. And we, um, but again, we wanted to sort of look to see what the literature might show. Um, are, you know, are there things that we can do differently that are evidence based or more evidence based than our current practice? So we now have a new peer model. And um, moving forward, I'll be leading a, a project with the Federation of Spinal Cord Injury Organizations. Um, working closely with a research team out of Laval. The um, CIRIS um, is the center um, that, uh, where the researchers are based. And we'll be um, identifying what are the, the best tools that we can use to train peer mentors and tracking and, and sort of measuring that. So that, that's a really exciting project for me because I, I believe strongly in the importance of peer peer support, um, peer mentorship. I, th- I think that should always be fundamental to our mm-hmm. services. Uh, but Absolutely. How peers, you know, relate to each other is our environment has changed so much. Mm-hmm. So one-on-one now becomes um, texting and uh, uh, Skyping and, and that sort of thing. Wonderful. Wonderful. And so um, why don't we talk a little bit, uh, because, you know, it has to do a lot with the fundraising and, and the fact that the money's raised goes directly back into client service. So why don't we talk about the major annual fundraising event, um, the Red Carpet Affair, and a little bit about how that came to be. The um, the, the notion of a gala, um, and we've, we've had a gala now repeating for 12 years, um, the notion for the gala was to create an opportunity to profile the wonderful success that individuals um, with spinal cord injury have, um, as well as the organizations that support that journey. So it was um, envisioned as an, as an awards and awareness event. It was called the Red Carpet Affair. And initially, those were the goals, recognition, awards, awareness. Um, and then after the first two years, we began to transition it into also a fundraiser uh, because funds, of course, are critical for us to be able to do the work that we do. Um, so the, the event continues. We just had our 12th annual red carpet affair in uh, March. Um, it uh, 
annually raises us about $75,000. Um, that was certainly the amount we raised this year. Um, and, and we've been at that level for a few years now, so we're really pleased about that. We, um, we are considering perhaps tweaking it or rebranding it a bit for next year, just to kind of freshen up the look and the images. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, you know, we've got a, a committee of, of folks that, um, you know, will we'll be thinking through that process. But it, uh, we certainly intend to have a new gala or another gala next year, but uh, it might have a slightly different look. But certainly we will continue to make it an opportunity to profile success by people mm-hmm. who have who live with a disability and to recognize um, organizations and other people who contribute to that successful journey. Fantastic. And is the, is the main award of distinction still uh, called the Christopher Reeve Award? Is that still being... Uh... No, our, we, we have transitioned away from using the name Christopher Reeve. Um, our committee and, and stakeholders felt that um, it was losing its recognition in Alberta. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we transitioned to, uh, sh- you know, a sort of a shining star award. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last two years, we've tried to profile people from Canada, ideally from Alberta. But you know, we have, in terms of a keynote speaker, we we cast a sort of a Canada-wide net. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so that that will that will continue. Uh, but less, I, I guess, less emphasis on um, the name of that award for our keynote speaker, uh, because we found sometimes the people that we want to recognize for that shining star um, are not necessarily um, keynote speakers that would hold the attention of, of an audience of 500 people. So, okay. Uh, that, that's why we, we've we been a bit flexible with that. Okay. And so when was that award, uh, in terms of it being called that, when was the last year that it would have been still classified as the Christopher Reeve Award before changing up uh, the format? It's the, uh, three years. Three years? Okay. Wow, I have been gone for a while. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but, so, you know, uh, we do uh, we do continue to offer other named awards, um, such as the per- Percy Wickman Accessibility Award, right. um, the Lois Hole Community Development Award, um, yeah. honoring people that are that continue to be recognized in Alberta. Lovely. Well, fantastic. Uh, the, the Dr. Gary McPherson Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah, he was a lovely man. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And um, so in, in terms of the demographic of those who incur spinal cord injury, I know sometimes statistically, uh, you know, that core population of who's more likely at this point based on research to sustain a spinal cord injury, you know, what is that demographic? Well, you uh, know, it is changing. Uh, it's changed outside of Alberta a bit more rapidly. Now, with our economy um slowing down we might we might see the same demographic changes as other provinces mm-hmm. historically the peak incidence for spinal cord injury was in young males two-thirds males to females and between the ages of 18 and 32 that was the highest risk group and time frame but that's that's very much changed now in most provinces um, alberta we still trend a bit towards that um, as being our highest demographic. In other provinces, what we're seeing is that um, the incidence of injury is happening more commonly amongst boomers um, because boomers are, you know, have uh, moved through life 
many being very active and continue to be very active. And so in, in other provinces, and we are also seeing it here too, um, people are being injured skiing, um, they're, they're being injured mountain biking, uh, a number of really active pursuits. Um, you know, and, and so we're, we're seeing a lot of injuries now that are in people over the age of 55. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In Alberta, because we had such an influx of population related to employment opportunities, and a lot of those, of course, related to oil and gas, where right. people are traveling long distances, um, on rough roads, and driving when they're tired, we, we still had um, a demographic that did favor, uh, you know, that younger age group and more, more males to females. But mm-hmm. once you get outside of that 35 age range, um, it's pretty much 50-50 now. Right. Just men and women. And uh, uh, the older you get, the uh, the more the, the incident seems to climb now. Mm-hmm. Well, I recall, uh, I'm not quite sure how long ago it was, but I remember reading something reflective of there being a bit of a spike as a result, and primarily females too, if I recall reading it correctly, with texting-related incidences. I don't know if because of the awareness and all the campaigns that are out there and, and uh, you know, just the the information uh, of not doing that and the law supporting that, if you've seen a reduction in that or if you could speak to that. Well, uh, we really just have hunches uh, about the impact related to spinal cord injury because, of course, gathering data about accidents caused from texting are difficult to get right. accurate data. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we do surmise that, um, you know, when you look at injury statistics just for motor vehicle accidents, there was a rise, um, mm-hmm. and now there seems to be a bit of a decline. I know our, our recent Alberta stats um, showed a, a nice decline this year over last year. So Excellent. we do have to assume that that's, um, or, or we we surmise that that is related to the campaign to promote um, you know, not using, or well, the distra- anti-distraction laws. Um, so we, we do feel that's had an impact. But in terms of being able to narrow it down and really understand the impact to spinal cord injury, we, we just don't have the data. Right. Okay. And so for, for people who not, who are not in your world, uh, and aren't fully entrenched in knowing the ins and outs about spinal cord injury, could you maybe just, Taryn, walk people through the process of when somebody does, uh, unfortunately sustain a spinal cord injury? What, what, what's the course of key events that happens from injury to hospital to rehab, uh, to hopefully some form of independent type living and supports in place, uh, to facilitate that journey? Oh, absolutely. So uh, the first critical piece is your emergency responders. And in Alberta, there's been a a very successful campaign to make sure that all first responders are trained in um, spine protection, um, you know, from the level of of, uh, the head uh, right to the tailbone. So making sure that if they're called to an injury, um, whether they be volunteer fire department or um, full-fledged fire department, the um, paramedics, EMTs that, you know, attend the scene, they all have basic training now um, really focused on following the best practice guidelines of stabilizing the spine. So that's made a difference. Um, Quick, uh, getting people to hospital quickly, of course, is critical 
Um, you know, here in Alberta, we're very fortunate in that we do have a number of STARS air ambulances, which helps to transport people to the tertiary care centers. Uh, in Alberta, we have two centers that, um, you know, have levels of, of care that can accommodate people that have been in those traumatic injuries, uh, both Calgary and Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Uh, people spend time in the ICU being stabilized, um, having their surgery done to stabilize the spine. And I, you know, I believe there's probably a public misperception that, um, you know, the spinal cord actually gets broken in half. That's not, in fact, what happens is, you know, the backbone, the structure that supports the spine uh, can be crushed or broken. Um, it can uh, Bone fragments can protrude into the spinal cord, but the spinal cord actually isn't cut in half per se. It's traumatized, and then there's a sequence of events related to that trauma that allows those nerve cells or causes those nerve cells to die off. And so you have damage at the level of the spine injury or the the, uh, vertebrae injury and above that. Um, and below. So that's, that's what causes the loss of function related to nerves that run up and down the spine. Mm-hmm. The, um, that needs to be assessed. And, you know, as time goes on, I think it's recognized more and more that um, the future is really quite unknown. Um, a lot of the animal research suggests now that fibers can be retrained. If there's any fibers spared within the spinal cord, they can be retrained to a degree with really, you know, aggressive or repetitive rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. Um, The challenge in our environment financially is that, um, you know, hospitals have reduced the amount of time for people to spend in rehab. And so, um, you know, people perhaps would improve their functional capacity more if they had more access to rehab for a longer period of time. So that's the role that, you know, we've been trying to play is to encourage people when they're discharged from the rehab center that uh, it's really important that they commit to long-term training and and fitness and wellness Um, because we've observed that in our staff and in our members that people can continue to improve for many, many years small incremental, but it does make a difference to their function, their functional capacity, as well as their emotional, spiritual health mm-hmm. and, and their physical health in regards to um, less complications associated with spinal cord injury. Right. And, you know, and, and um, you know, as you know, some of those include frequent urinary tract infections, um, skin breakdown uh, re- related to pressure. Um, those are those are problems that can be managed well, but it takes um, a very conscientious individual focused on their own personal health and wellness to be able to do that. And, mm-hmm. you know, the literature shows now that if you're physically active, um, you know, even though you use a wheelchair for mobility, that if you're physically active, there's less chance of you having skin breakdown. Um, your um, All your your body systems work better Um, when you're out and about and uh, uh, exercising to the extent that you can. Fantastic. And are are many of the clients um, consumers using the Steadward Center still? Yes, yes, absolutely. And the Steadward Center programs have expanded out into the community. So Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's uh, 
some of their services now are available through a local Y, um, also through the Seville Center, which is a new center for training elite athletes associated with the university. So there's a number of areas now in Edmonton where you can receive that. And in Calgary, um, we work in close uh, partnership with the Foothills Hospital, who provides acute care and rehab. Um, the University of Calgary uh, also has um, uh, an area where they provide rehabilitation support to people in the community and as us. Um, and we work together to make sure that you can get a similar level of service in any of those areas. And one of the new things that have been introduced in southern Alberta is access to functional electrical stimulation, which for, you know, until the past two years was not available in southern Alberta, only in uh, the Edmonton area. So that's a a huge um, advancement for what we're doing in the province. Wonderful. And and we have that available at our fitness and wellness center. And this summer we'll be adding um, nutrition counseling as part of our center. Good. Wonderful. And so what's what's taking place with people who are living uh, in more remote areas who are living with spinal cord injuries? What's the resources for individuals who aren't necessarily close to some of these uh, uh, facilities? Um, it's certainly much more challenging. Um, the success in terms of transition to full community participation is, is really uh, dependent on the support of that community. And we, you know, in the communities, um, we have staff that work with the community to try and identify the physical barriers and to prevent, uh, well, to change those barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, you know, simple things like access to uh, wheelchair parking, um, curb cuts, but the biggest barrier to community transition is access to affordable, accessible housing. Mm-hmm. Financial changes to families impacted by spinal cord injury are so huge in the first couple of years, um, you know, as you sort out what might be available through insurance um, or workers' comp, or for some people, they have no access to that type of financial support. Mm-hmm. So for just about everyone, access to affordable, accessible housing is a challenge. Um, we try and work in the communities to encourage the development of that. It's been really tough the last few years because neither the federal government nor the province have invested any money into uh, accessible, affordable housing. Wow. And uh, so there's uh, that, that's been a big barrier. Um, we're trying to work with private developers to encourage them to create a, um, a range of options in the community, mm-hmm. including wheelchair accessibility. But, you know, unfortunately, those are available at market value. And again, that can be a, a barrier. So right. some communities have risen to the cost, like Grand Prairie. They've created um, some really nice options for life in the community that's supported, um, providing you know attendance support, that sort of thing. Um, and other communities have done very little. Wow. So it does it does mean that for some folks to live successfully in the community, they have to move to a center where there is housing, accessible transportation accessible, advanced education, because for most people, they do need to retrain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so how many of those people are able to make that transition, you know, as, as costly as it might be initially, uh, but to know that, you know, 
the, the cost that they would have to incur, hopefully with some type of assistance um, and the resources in place provided by your agency, uh, how many people make that leap of faith and and do that versus of, how many of stay the, put? Of the people who set that goal to return to school or return to work, they're very close to 100% successful. It's the time frame um, to get there that mm-hmm. it, it's slower. Um, so generally in terms of going through all of the stages of adjustment, adapting your environment, that can take three to five years, mm-hmm. um, particularly if, you know, if you're having to modify your home or to sell your home and buy a different one. Um, and then, you know, you need to look after the transportation aspect, um, the retraining, if that's a factor. Um, it's it's a, a gradual process. But for people who set that goal, um, they do get back to work. Good. Uh, you know, Good. we've we've been lucky in Alberta that we've you know had low unemployment for a number of years. That it that is changing in this last four months, but mm-hmm. uh, and so that that may have an impact. Well, actually, that's a good segue to some of what I witnessed uh, when I was out there, and I mean, I'm sure you could speak to this very well, Taryn. Is you know the bust and the boom uh, that happened out there, and, and what that did for clients, what that did for wait times, what that did for. Uh, a whole myriad of challenges that uh, presented to staff, serving, uh, you know, delivery service providers, uh, as well as clients, families, um, agencies, facilities. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about that in terms of people being impacted by, you know, the economy? Yeah. Uh, um, well, I mean, right now, because our economy has slowed, um, it takes a while for that to. Um, back, you know, to, to travel backwards down the chain of services. Mm-hmm. I think because we've just gone through a year of tremendous change politically, you know, mm-hmm. first with a, a leadership race last fall and a new premier and then a, an election and now a change in government, it's been very much a, a holding pattern in terms of government-funded services. And, you know, we do have some of our services are contracted by the government. So there was a lot of uncertainty about our, our funding contracts. Um, even though it's, it's less than 50% of our funding, it, it still creates a lot of uncertainty. Um, so far, you know, we're moving forward. Um, instead of getting a, a 12-month contract on April 1, we had a three-month extension to our previous contract. And then we got a an extension to December, end of December. So, you know, there's still some uncertainty, but um, this week our new Premier has announced that, you know, there will not be changes to uh, human service funding, that programs should continue. So that's a sigh of relief for us. Excellent. Um, and, and the same for health services. So that's good. But um, we, we, you know, we're uncertain in terms of the impact on um, employment supports and mm-hmm. you know infrastructure mm-hmm. because because physical barriers are are a big barrier to somebody who uh, uses a chair for mobility. Absolutely, and uh, and so based on everything that you you've talked about in terms of like just. Um, you know, honing in on it for our listeners again who might not be familiar with this topic or know of anybody who personally has a, a spinal cord injury. What are the gaps? Like, what can people do to support people with spinal cord injuries? What can people do to support the agency? I mean, I'm sure you're always in need of volunteers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the big gap that I see right now is 
um, the responsibility to find the funding, that families must find the funding for 24-hour support. Um, mm-hmm. People who have a high level of injury certainly can live very successfully in the community. And, you know, we've seen that through public figures like um, Sam Sullivan, uh, Minister Stephen Fletcher, former minister um, in, in Alberta. Kent Hare has been just a superb MLA and is now running for the federal Liberals. Wonderful. So those people demonstrate that regardless of the level of your injury or the extent of your physical disability, you can lead a very productive life. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the gap or the one of the problems that prevents people from achieving the way they have is that there's not uh, there's very little funding for attendant care or support for those activities of daily living that you're not able to do yourself because of your physical limitations. Um, that continues to be quite underfunded from my perspective. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, you'll probably recall that um, we created a training program for essentially people off the street that were, that were interested in working in the field of caregiving um, to take some of the burden of training those caregivers off of the families. Um, what we were doing was organizing um, family to uh, to provide that training on behalf of others. Um, mm-hmm. But that, that's that been hard because you can only do it in small groups. And so it's very labor-intensive from the perspective of our organization to coordinate that. And it's quite labor-intensive then for the consumers, the users of attendant care, to be the trainers. Um, so we're looking at moving that towards um, an online training program. Uh, but, you know, again, we, we need investment. It could be a social enterprise for us. Um, could actually generate revenues if we had an online campus of a variety of courses or modules that people could take that better prepare them to support somebody and be a, a caregiver. And there's interest from the community colleges that those programs might be given um, recognition in terms of um, allowing people to be more quickly accepted into the healthcare aid program or the LPN program mm-hmm. um, or eventually nursing. And do you find that uh, there's less people who are drawn or gravitating towards that line of work? Well, or, or, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's always hard to find people to work in that field. Mm-hmm. Um, where when we were running our training program, which we, we continue to do intermittently, um, we try to recruit people who are, one group would be fresh out of high school and uncertain as to what they want to do with their life moving forward, people who think they might like to work in the healthcare field but perhaps don't have the high school academic uh, success that allows them to immediately get into a program. Mm-hmm. So we try and recruit people fresh out of high school and also the, the next uh, next group, which is probably even broader, is new immigrants. Um, they must have a, a level of English as a second language that allows for good communication. But we've had really good success in recruiting people to work as attendants and be very devoted attendants who um, are new immigrants. Um, you know, certainly there's cultural aspects that are important for them to learn about caring for someone. Um, mm-hmm. Those activities of daily living and, and personal care, but they've they've been very successful in that role. 
Wonderful. And so for people who, with living with spinal cord injury who have uh, a, a higher level of injury, therefore requiring a higher level of care, uh, you know, I can remember back in the day, it was always preferable to go the route of having a live-in caregiver. And I'm not sure today what the status is of any of those existing programs or uh, if you've seen more people drawn towards that. Um, yeah, it, it would still be a preferred choice. Mm-hmm. But there's a, been a barrier created by changes at the federal government level to the foreign, the temporary foreign uh, caregiver program. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's more cost to the consumer family to, to apply for um, a caregiver. And um, the delay in processing that has increased. Um, so it's become very tricky. Um, and very difficult. And that, that's been a huge barrier and very disappointing to a lot of people who um, really uh, thrived in the community when they had access to a live-in caregiver who was available intermittently on a, you know, 24-7 basis. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, often they required additional care providers as well. But to have somebody who lived in your home who could kind of help coordinate your other care providers, that was very cost-effective. And it's, that program's very much challenged now for people with disabilities to access. And the changes that were made were because of abuse that was happening. And I don't think there was a lot of abuse, but there might have been the odd situation in Canada where um, uh, chain, conven- or not convenience stores, but, uh, you know, chain stores were abusing those types of workers. And so mm-hmm. they brought in all these tough, tough changes, but that spilled down to people who work as nannies and, and live-in caregivers. And uh, so that program is, uh, the way it used to be, is really missed by our consumer base. Yeah. And uh, I know that lots of people have been talking to their MPs to try and get that changed. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, and I, you know, like everybody else, I certainly hope that those changes are, are made and, uh, cause it really does, as you know, affects the quality of people's life and, you know, people want to buy into participation and, and still pursuing things like career and education or having a family or going on a, you know, a family vacation and, and when you, we, when you struggle to just meet the basic criteria of our human basic needs, it's, um, it's very challenging. So mm-hmm. I, I really wish all those people the best with that. That's tough. And, you know, what we noticed uh, last year because of the growing provincial deficit, that a lot of changes were were being uh, contemplated at the level of Alberta Health Services. And um, it, it would seem to them that it, some quick fixes to reduce the budget is to cut back in long-term community support um, and focus on sort of those highly visible um, acute care needs. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that's been uh, very challenging for um, the people that we work with. Um, you know, cuts have been made to the amount of self-managed care dollars that they would have been allocated before. And in terms of direct service through home care for in-home support, um, again, they've tightened their criteria about what you can and can't do for the client. Um, and, you know, if you have a high-level injury, you need help with all activities of daily living. But um, through home care direct service, they're only allowed to address certain elements of activities of daily living, not all of them, which makes 
not a lot of sense, but I guess in terms of of uh, making reductions, it made sense to somebody who uh, didn't understand uh, what life with um, a severe physical disability is like, and yet right. what the capacity for their involvement, participation can be. Mm-hmm. And so based on all of this, when you're talking about funding and you're talking about uh, lack of uh, affordable housing, affordable, accessible housing, um, what does this do in terms of, you know, anything that you've been able to chart or follow with research related to, uh, you know, of course, we attribute a lot of longevity of life to quality of life. And there's obviously a, a correlation in a, a very important relationship there. So for people who are feeling marginalized or feeling oppressed uh, or feeling like they're the have-nots because of the timing of when they sustain their spinal cord injury and that not being aligned politically or with monies, monies then being available, um, you know, what is this doing to what you're perhaps noticing in terms of trends of, of how long people are now living, uh, those with a spinal cord injury? Well, our, uh, we, we don't have good data on that because we, we don't have access to Alberta Health Services data. But okay. anecdotally, um, our observation is that if you live in the community, you live longer. If you right. live, if you go from rehab or acute care to long-term care, um, you don't survive as long. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a variety of reasons um, that I could surmise about that, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's very clear from our tracking of, of clients that um, your life expectancy is shortened if you uh, rely on long-term care. And, uh, you know, people, uh, what, what we observe is people often lose their will to live mm-hmm. when they're in that environment. Right. Which, again... Unfortunately, it's an option. It's sometimes the only option that people are presented with, depending on their, their personal, economic, and family support circumstance. But it's um, it's one that, you know, we try and help people avoid, if at all possible, because we right. see it as a, uh, a really negative direction to go. Right. Which, you know, is a, it just reiterates the importance, particularly of your peer support program. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't know if, if your peer counselors make house calls or, again, if it's just uh, primarily Skype or texting, but at least that connection's being made, correct? That's right. No, we still provide outreach, um, okay. and uh, that's still perceived by the folks that we work closely with at the rehab center, um, you know, in Calgary and Edmonton. Um, they still perceive that as a huge benefit that we bring to that continuing that con- the, the continuum of care. Well, I'm that sure we can it's, make it's survival. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure for some people, it's it's the it's their survival. Yeah, you know that human contact and uh, you know the caring and the, the inspiration and the, to just keep going and somebody mm-hmm. being able to identify with somebody else's story and know that there is hope regardless of circumstances or cutbacks or lack of this or lack of that. So I'm really glad to hear that that program's going strong, Taryn. Mm-hmm. And we're, you know, we're hoping to um, do more around employment readiness. Mm-hmm. Um, we really recognize that when the provincial government made the decision to fund only organizations that wanted want to provide employment support or employment programs across disability, mm-hmm. we really saw that had a negative impact um, for people with spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, our expertise is in spinal cord injury. We didn't want to apply for funding if it meant we provided that services across the continuum. Right. 
but uh, we recognize there's some really important pieces that got missed by by the cross disability organizations, and so we're trying to get back into an aspect of employment readiness, utilizing peer mentorship, using the Discovering the Power in Me program, which is so powerful. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's something that I, I would like to share with you a bit more um, because I, I think the general public needs to understand better. So one of the huge barriers that an individual has to overcome when they're first injured is their own personal perception of what life with a disability means. And for many people, they've had no exposure to physical disability or they, it may be very limited, and they may have personally very negative attitudes about what this means to them and their self-identity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we were part of a, a team of people that um, developed an empowerment training program that helps people recognize, oh, one of the first barriers I have to overcome is my own personal attitude. And uh, it, it's been very powerful. Um, again, as we can attract dollars to run workshops, we run it sporadically. Um, we'd really like to, uh, to to work with other groups and bring this to the menu of employment readiness options because we've got some really powerful data about how this impacts people um, and, and really propels them forward um, so that they successfully transition back into employment or uh, full community participation, uh, you know, as a, a volunteer, if not employment. Fantastic. Love it. Love the program. I, 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 I've seen you discuss that at our previous board meetings and, uh, you know, the testimonials that came out of that and how it had certainly enhanced people's lives and attitudes had in fact been changed. So really good work there. Yeah, it really, it really gives people pragmatic skills about mm-hmm. how to, um, you know, use tools to really create a new vision for their future and move in that direction. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's very common concepts with personal empowerment. Uh, training for anyone, but it, it's bringing it to a level where um, it's taught by people with spinal cord injury, and uh, they provide real concrete examples of how you can change your mindset, um, mm-hmm. and uh, as a result, your behaviors, and, and behave in a way and have beliefs that lead you to success. Well, I'm glad to hear that's going really strongly, Taryn. That's wonderful. And uh, we only have about five minutes here to wrap up. So what I'd like to do is, you know, maybe talk a little bit about, um, you know, given the nature of what you do, the scope of what you do, how many people, uh, you know, you're responsible for and the amount of traveling you do and just all the planning and the budgeting and the interfacing at the government level, you know, how do you find time and what do you choose to do to decompress or to, to remain balanced or focused or reinvigorated? Well, um, you know, I'm at uh, the point in my personal life now where it's it's been easier for me to be really grounded. I think certainly, you know, in, in my mid-career when I was raising children and working full-time, it was tougher. But but now it's it's easy. So let me tell you how I start my day. <laughs> uh, at six a.m., I'm in the hot tub, and I spend twenty minutes there having my coffee and my smoothie, looking around at the environment, whether it's thirty below or like today where it was just a crystal clear blue sky. And of course, we have those really long Alberta days right now. Yes. But I I get grounded. Um, I think think about my day and my week, and then I jump out, I have my shower, and then I walk my dogs, and I do exercises while I walk. And again, it takes me into nature in my community. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, you know, that takes me till 7.30, and then I'm off to the office. And uh, I just, by the time I get to the office, I feel really grounded um, for the day and just uh, relaxed. And so that, that's that been a, a big key for me. Um, I'm also uh, passionate about team sports. And though um, as I approach 60, um, team that's sports are a little harder. Lovely, by the way. Yeah, a little harder for me to participate in, but I still play ringette. And mm-hmm. I play with um, much younger women. Um, and I think they appreciate my commitment and the sort of mentorship I bring to them as somebody who's had a career and children and kind of balanced it all. So that's really fun, and that gives me some good cardiovascular exercise as well because skating is quite age-friendly. <laughs> so so I do that. And then uh, in the summer, my husband and I sail almost every Sunday. Wonderful. Uh, and, and that's something we've taken up sort of this last five years and. Uh, again, it's quiet. It's in nature. So um, that's that's an important part of my spirituality is getting out into nature, into the quiet, and enjoying the weather, the, the elements, and the scenery. And well, good for you, Taryn. And uh, I just want to say how lovely it's been to have you on my show, and uh, you know, to hear all the great things that continue to happen on your front, and certainly well deserved all the successes and uh, the partnerships. And congratulations on, you know, I, I know it's synonymous with where you're at with the agency at uh, the, the national level too. Um, but you know, going from executive director to CEO, that's phenomenal, outstanding achievement. And I just want to say on behalf of everybody who knows you, respects you, uh, and really admires your savviness and your tenacity and your resiliency and, and just being a visualizer and being very progressive in the field. We thank you. You know, uh, you, you've really put that agency on the map and you've really changed people's lives for the better and given people hope and you're a connector. You know, you put people in, in line with other people and it's truly made a huge quality of difference to people's lives. I've witnessed it, and it was such an honor to work with you on the board. And I miss you tremendously, and I'm looking forward to uh, behind-the-scenes conversations just to get caught up on a personal level as well. Oh, same here. Well, I'm tremendously proud of our organization. But probably my biggest motivation is the people that I've come to know with spinal cord injury over the years. Um, it's just an extremely motivating um, relationship. Right. That I've had with with such wonderful people. Well, phenomenal. Thank you so much, Taryn. And I just want to thank our listeners for tuning in again to my show, Carpe Diem, and joining us with our lovely guest, Taryn Clark, out in Alberta. Uh, so I just want to say have a wonderful weekend. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there, the grandfathers. And uh, look forward to being joined by you again next Friday, 11.04 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on my show, Carpe Diem. All my best, Taryn. All my best listeners. Take care and have a wonderful weekend. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Carpe Diem with your host, Lisa McDonald. For more information, please go to Lisa's website at lisamcdonaldauthor.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.